I'm Julia Figueres from WXXI, and I am very happy to be talking with the new music director of your Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Andreas Delfs. Congratulations. Thank you. And welcome back to Rochester. Lovely to see you. It's, I'm so happy to see <laughs> you, too. You are lucky number 13 of music directors for the RPO, but you're actually you're part of our Rochester Finger Lakes community. You have a house in Trumansburg. Yes, I had a house for better part of 26 years, I think. How did you happen upon Trumansburg? Well, I um, went to Juilliard. That was one of the places where I studied. And um, my cousin from Germany had emigrated to the United States, and she had a restaurant in Ithaca. So whenever I had the $40 or whatever it cost to take the Greyhound up from New York to Ithaca, I did that and on holidays and when I was hungry and spent <laughs> a lot of time there and loved the Finger Lakes area. I felt immediately at home there. And when I realized that in my life I will always move, you know, three years here, six years here, eight years here, uh, that's how it is in a conductor's life, I wanted one home that stayed the same for my family that wouldn't change all the time. So we bought that house there on a beautiful lake, um, it's about 10 minutes out of Ithaca, and um, spent summers there. For the first 20 years, we went there every summer. And these last couple of years, we've lived there full time. Okay, so now you, you don't have to move around. You're all settled and you have a, you have a job close to home, so it works yeah. out perfectly. You have a bit of history with the RPO. Do you remember your first appearance with the orchestra? I do remember very well. It was about 25 years ago, and it was one of my first professional gigs. I had just had management, and uh, I was still assistant conductor, I think, at the time in Pittsburgh, working with Lauren Mazel, but this was one of my first real guest engagements. And it was Beethoven 5, and that's, as you know, it's a kind of a testing ground for yeah. orchestra-conductor relationship. Does it gel or does it not? And it, it went wonderful, and we had such a good time from the first moment on. And as you know, since then, I've been back many times. Many times, and, and we just love it when you, when you come back. So what is it about this orchestra that's special to you? Mm. It's a good question, because, you know, when... when uh, conductors or orchestra players have to talk about what makes the relationship between orchestra and conductor special. We don't have the right words. You know, we, we escape to expressions like chemistry or things like that yeah. because it is very hard to describe. It is a, um, um, I mentioned Beethoven 1, a piece that I love since I was very small and studied very well and know very well, but then you meet a group of musicians, 60, 70, 80 of them, that all know it very well and all have played it many, many times. So how does this go together? You have, you have very accomplished, mature musicians and back then a relatively young conductor and so many different opinions of, of the piece. It can be a disaster and a fight from the first to the last note, which happens, and it can be a wonderful, harmonious, finding middle ground. And why that sometimes happens and sometimes not, I, I cannot explain to you. With this orchestra, what is so special that they are such a great group, not only accomplished individual musicians, but also um, as, as a whole. So you very quickly come to the moment where you can forget the technical difficulties of bringing the piece together, which there are. Uh, but with this orchestra and obviously the way that I conduct, we left that behind of our rehearsal very quickly. And then you start to get where it's really interesting in music, under the skin of the music, behind the lines and the little dots. And you get to a level that we as musicians all want to get to, um, the truth in the music, the meaning in the music, the, the depth in the music. And I can only tell you after 
40 years or so of experience, with some orchestras you reach that level, and with others you don't. Why that is, I don't know. But I know with the Rochester Philharmonic, it happened from the first time that I conducted them and through every single visit that I paid here. Now you come here at a very fraught time. Things are very difficult and your to-do list is very, very long. So let's start with equity. There have been a lot of discussions about the classical world, about the lack of equity and diversity in the classical world. Mm -hmm. So I ask you, Andreas, what needs to be done, both in the orchestra and in the programming, to mm -hmm. better mm -hmm. reflect our society? Mm -hmm. To better reflect our society and, and the, the specific uh, mix-up that the community that you work for um, is composed of. Otherwise, you work in a vacuum, and we all know that. Um, Julia, I think one thing that we cannot forget, because it would be unrealistic, is that an orchestra, like a sports team, is based on excellence. We cannot suddenly change that. But what we can do is to help foster this level of excellence that we want throughout all levels of society and through all ethnicities. And it has to start very early on. I think the problem is not that the communities that we work in is not well reflected in the mix-up of the orchestra. The problem is not that uh, we don't hire enough um, people that come from an ethnic minority or from a, from a social different background, but that the um, choice of players we have is already limited at the conservatory level. I spent many years teaching and working at universities, and even there the balance is not the same balance that the community at large represents. I think what I would like to do as music director of the Rochester Philharmonic is engage my colleagues to become mentors for young musicians from backgrounds that are not naturally coming to classical music early on. I mean that we need to find talented musicians from all walks of life, from all ethnicities, and offer our help early on in their lives, when they, when they start to learn instruments. Because the problem is, you know that yourself because you have children who play music, when, when young people grow up in a family that doesn't originally favor and foster classical music, and maybe also come from a socioeconomic background where, you know what lessons cost, 50, 100, 150 dollars, where that is not in the cards. So um, I think orchestras all around need to start at that level, foster young talent uh, pro bono in a way that uh, every orchestra player adopts a talented kid that we could identify through the school system that normally would not come to an instrument in any other way. Because the problem is not that we don't hire in the orchestra world enough people from minority ethnicities, and different socioeconomic backgrounds, but there are simply not enough in the final rounds um, of those kind of auditions. And we need to stay, like any sports team, any baseball and basketball teams, we need to stay a competitive group where the artistic excellence is the only borderline that decides whether people come in or not. So now we're talking about music in the schools then, and finding a way to reach into the schools. I mean, there was a period of time when the RPO played every single school in the greater Monroe mm -hmm. County area on a four-year rotating schedule so that 
every kid mm -hmm. could see the orchestra in his or her high school at least yeah. once in his or her life. And, and so now you're talking about something that's really kind of a big deal, a big project, is bringing this back to the schools. Yeah. What you talked about is, is and, and many American orchestras do that very successfully, is to raise the next generation of audience and hopefully find new audiences in areas where they not naturally uh, would have an opportunity to see the orchestra. But I, I'm really talking about teaching young people, kids, to play an instrument. It's as simple as that, you know, how many players, how many kids are not encouraged by their parents to take piano lessons or violin lessons or trumpet lessons, whatever it is. Because the parents either work three jobs or come themselves from a family where classical music was not a big deal. But that doesn't mean that these kids might not have the talent. And I think that's where we need to open up much more the pool of talent that uh, an orchestra has as teachers and bring it to those people and say, we offer you a half year or a year free lessons. Here's, here's my number three trumpet. You can borrow it for the time or you can give it as a present. But just that more people from different backgrounds have a chance to learn an instrument. I think then eventually, of course it's a long, slow process, it will filter through the, to, the, to the conservatories and there will be more ethnic colorization and diversification in the conservatories, which then make the auditions for major orchestras that look for the highest quality much more diversified as well. It's a frustration because the concept of music in schools has become an extra, as they call mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. and, and it has been thrown, music classes mm -hmm. and art classes mm -hmm. have been thrown into this weird category called extras. Mm -hmm. Without an understanding um, of the syllabus level that, that the arts are really important. They yeah. bring so much to the life of a young student. And in fact, it might be the only thing that makes any little boy or little girl happy in school mm -hmm. is that mm -hmm. chance to be mm -hmm. in chorus, to be in band, mm -hmm. to be in art class. Mm -hmm. And yet we've gotten to this place where it's somehow an extra in our society, which it should not be. No. Julia, in my mind, there's no question that we need to do more. Because people like you and me who have spent our whole life in music. We know that music is essential, right? That it's not just a luxury item or an elite item, but that it, is, it can be the basis of your life and the anchor in your life, the one anchor that keeps reminding you of your human potential. And I think many, many more people need to experience that and stop thinking of music as, as, as I said before, you know, like an add-on or something that is superfluous and recognize that music can and should be an essential part of your life and I think we need to start much earlier putting instruments in children's hands and say this first-rate musicians will spend six months with you really teaching you this and then we see how it goes and see whether this talent develop but that's how we get a more diversified group that then might be able to move on to conservatories and ultimately to major orchestras. Is that what it was like when you were growing up as a kid? Well you know I grew up in Germany and we were given an instrument I think I was eight or nine years old and I was given a bassoon I had never seen a bassoon or heard of a bassoon didn't know what kind of sound it would make but I got my bassoon it was a not very good instrument but I, I got it I got lessons from the principal bassoon player of our local orchestra um, I don't think they were totally free but they were very affordable and um, after three months four months maybe I became part of the school orchestra and you know, you know how it went after that. I loved music, I loved symphonic music, I wanted to be conductor in TRM. But it was really at that point, yes, music was treasured in our household, which is 
a good starting point. But as far as playing an orchestra instrument, my mother would have never thought of giving me a bassoon. So <laughs> <laughs> here I am. You know, I was so surprised one day when our, our daughter, who was, I think, seven or eight at the time, came home and announced she was going to play the bassoon. Mm -hmm. and to this day, I don't know <laughs> what, what got into her head, but there yeah. you go. And she went with it. And yeah. It gave her a great deal. And it gave her a lot of friendships yeah. and experiences. Yeah. And, I, and I would love to see that. that that's what needs to happen. You say a, a great deal. W what does it mean, a great deal? It needs to be able to go to a kid uh, that would never think, as you just said, about it and say, here is a flute. You can have it for six months, and I give you a lesson for six months, and then we see. That opportunity is what I think orchestras need to get much more involved in. Now, there's another piece of this, and that's programming for equity. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm very excited to see that you have a world premiere of Jesse Montgomery mm -hmm. with Awadajim Pratt playing mm -hmm. the piano concerto. Mm -hmm. um, the programming becomes another issue, too, yeah. because it's this has been decades and decades mm -hmm. and decades mm -hmm. of of pieces by people of color and women not getting programmed in orchestras no. so how do you break down that wall well a lot has happened um there are so many talented uh composers from minorities and women composers now I, when i started out in the business it was really hard to find but now, I mean, you, you notice there's a w wonderful composer that I love, uh, Sarah Kirkland Snyder, on our program with a piece that we do. I conducted that about half a year ago. And um, I conduct a lot of Anna Klein's music. And it's just, you have much more choice. And as far as uh, composers go, you, uh, you're right. We have that world premiere of a piano concerto from Jesse Montgomery. We also have the world premiere of a Puerto Rican composer, Roberto Sierra, with the violin concerto. These are established people. They are having a career and we know that they're good. What's important is that we seek out those who are just at the beginning of the career and where a performance or a commission might really make a difference whether this young composer or even this young soloist stays the track because you, you, you know it's very hard to grab a foothold as a composer. Um, to be performed by orchestras is not easy. And I've known many talents who gave up after a while because they needed to earn money and have a real job and a family. And it takes a long time for a composer before they, he or she can actually live from composing. But our job as uh, programmers is to find them, seek them out, stay in touch with conservatories saying, who do you have who shows promise? Stay in touch with the publishing houses that publish contemporary music and said, who is your next up and coming? Who do you believe in that I should look at? So. Um, it, it, the times are much better. We have much more choice now, and the choices increase because we give it a little bit more attention. When I look back, I also see this whole string of women composers who existed. Louise Ferenc comes to mind immediately. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Clara Schumann mm -hmm. and, and Fanny Mendelssohn, wonderful composers, mm -hmm. both of the Boulanger mm -hmm. sisters. Mm -hmm. And these things seem to have sort of been created been well-liked when they were performed, mm -hmm. and then just vanished off the face of the earth, as if they never happened. Yeah, it's true. You hear, I mean, people like Fanny uh, Mendelssohn and Clara Schumann, you hear more often. The problem with those enormous talents is that in their own time, they were already suppressed. Fanny Mendelssohn was the little sister of, yeah. of Felix, and uh, you stay home and let Felix have the glory. And Clara Schumann was the virtuoso pianist who was seen as the 
profit of her husband Robert Schumann's works, but not as a composer in her own right. Unfortunately, these women didn't write that much. You see in what little they have that they were enormous talents, and if they had given more, um, more of a push and more recognition, they might have developed into very prolific and wonderful composers, but they were curbed. And that happened really, it still happens in our time, it's better in our time now, but it really went on like that for many, many decades. Now, one of the dangers I've always seen in programming is the uh, lip service. You know, mm -hmm. the little modern overture and all the rest mm -hmm. is something that's old mm -hmm. and probably white as well. And, and so when I looked at the season, I was really thrilled to see that that's not happening this mm -hmm. season. You are giving significant time to composers, Brian Neighbors, Gabriel Lena Frank, mm -hmm. Leah Auerbach, of course, Jennifer Higdon. Who doesn't love Jennifer Higdon? Mm -hmm. uh, Sarah Kirkland Snyder. These are not household names. Well, Jennifer Higdon kind mm -hmm. of is, but um, you are giving a, a real um, moment for these composers, and I, I find that thrilling. Yeah, well, I love their music. And again, we talked earlier about artistic excellence. I, I tell you, I would not demean them by saying, I program you because you're a woman composer. I, I program them because they write really wonderful music that I can relate to and that, that I love. And uh, with many of these, we want to build a relationship and we want to build trust between those names and the Rochester audience that they know, well, the first time I didn't know the name, but next season when I come back and read the name again, I know that I love that music. I think of Jennifer Higdon mm -hmm. and that harp concerto just blew out the door, mm -hmm. the Grammy mm -hmm. Award winning harp concerto, because mm -hmm. now everybody in Rochester who, who goes to see a concert knows who Jennifer Higdon is, mm -hmm. and, and they are willing to take the ride, yeah. because it was so exciting. It's all about building trust, and as I said before, there is just so many more artists now that we can build trust on, and then we can build trust to our listeners that the music is wonderful and the performance is wonderful. So how do you balance a concert, how do you balance a season? When you're coming in and you're looking at bringing in composers of color, women composers, plus the standard rep, how are you balancing that? Well, Julia, this is a very special season um, because we have been dark for such a long time. You know, this, By the time that we start this season in September, it will be over one and a half years that the orchestra had not really performed in front of an audience. So I want to be prepared for um, the situation that might arise that some people at that point might not be quite ready yet to go out in public and with a big group of people. But there might also be people who say, well, I, I did okay without for 18 months, so show me what you've got. And, mm. and I want to, to program a lot of music that is the kind of piece that made people fall in love with symphonic music. We all have those pieces when we heard I don't know what it was for you. For me, it was Beethoven 7. What, what was it for you? Beethoven 7. No, yeah, really? Yeah. This is not rehearsed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, we, the piece. We just, did, we just did the 12 days of Beethoven, yeah. where we, and we, we played all the symphonies, but we also chose things we love. I chose that one, and my statement about it was, mm -hmm. it's perfect. Yeah, it is. And we all have this kind of piece of music where lightning struck and made us lifelong lovers of music. And I try to program a lot of those pieces because I want people to come back and say, 
gee, we missed this. Boy, did we miss this. And, and uh, to balance that with what you mentioned earlier, diversified program, a lot of new things, uh, building trust between the audience and new composer and frankly new soloists that they've never seen. That's very important for me to, to balance that. And I think we got a kind of good balance. It's, we'll see how people react. But that what, was what I was going for. So uh, over the years, have you seen tastes change in audience ears? Uh, it's surprising how little change in preference there is. I just did um, something with my students. I, I, I said, um, next semester you can choose what we play. What's, make me a top ten list of your preferred classical pieces that you would do like uh, to do in the student orchestra. And it was the same than 50 years ago. It was Tchaikovsky 4 and Beethoven 7 and Brahms 1 and very, very little change. I think when it comes to what we call the war horses, you know, the big staples of the repertory, things have not much changed. But the openness and the willingness to give new pieces a try, that has changed quite a bit. Because people have heard so many changes in style in contemporary music in the last 25 years, I think, that their ears are open to a lot, from minimal music to, to dodecaphonic music to just chance music. There, there's a lot of different approaches that people are willing to give a chance. And that's what I hear. Um, when, when I now perform a contemporary piece, a world premiere or something that's new to the audience, I don't get this reaction anymore that after 10 bars people start to look at their watches or their cell phones. And you know, it used to be that people even left that has gotten much better. People are willing to give a new piece a much longer and a much better informed chance. And that helps us, of course, to build repertory because when we know um, what works with an audience, I mean, we mentioned uh, second time that I men mentioned Sarah Kirkland Snyder because uh, I was amazed how well her music goes with the audience, how many good feedback reports I got from her music. I loved it when I opened the page, but you never know how the audience will react. So we have a much more open audience now, I think. There's always this discussion about getting the younger audience into the concert hall. How do we get mm -hmm. the 20s and the 30s mm -hmm. and the 40s? Mm -hmm. I mean, Chicago mm -hmm. has been, at, on the average, 55 since day one. Yeah. So is there a trick to getting younger folks into the audience, does it matter? Will, will, will these people eventually come anyway? It has been a long, long time that the average audience for symphony orchestra is a little bit older. And as you know, especially American orchestras, but every, everybody internationally, there's lots of experiments to change that with not so much success. So I think in the one way, Classical music needs a certain maturity, which doesn't mean that you have to be a trained musician or a scholar, but you know, just a certain life maturity. When, when you want to hear something like the Second Symphony of Mahler, which really encompasses the whole uh, mountain of experience that is life, and you are a teenager, um, yeah, I'm sure there are certain things that you can relate to, but the whole gamut of emotions, um, you have to live a little bit longer to be able to relate to that, I think. I, that doesn't mean that we should not constantly try to bring younger audiences in it. And one, one big stumbling stock, uh, stone is always the uh, procedure. You know, when, mm. when, uh, what I hear most, what makes young people uncomfortable in a concert, it's not the music. 
it's that they don't know the decorum and am I allowed to clap here and what is this and why do I have to dress up and that is something that I see slowly changing. I see orchestras in their behavior and demeanor on stage being more relaxed and more open to different things than they used to be. I really don't think it's the music. Uh, I think when we continue to identify certain pieces on our season program by saying this would be especially suitable for a young person's first experience. Uh, take one example, we do uh, Hansel and Gretel, you know, in English. So we can say this is, this is certainly something for the whole family where young people will understand what's going on because we do it semi-staged. It will be in English and not in German. Um, I think we need to choose those pieces, identify them clearly and say this might be a good opportunity where your 8, 10, 12, 16 year old child might have that moment that we discussed earlier where lightning strikes and they become lifelong fans of classical music. So is it time to take off the tuxes? I personally like tuxes because I, I think that is our uniform that says this is something that we did as a group and that we perform as a well-trained ensemble. It's, it's the same with what people wear at basketball, you know. Uh, it shows that we're a team and that we go into the same direction and that we try, some, try to create something very special, uniform. And, uh, but if the majority of the orchestra would come and say, we would like to change that, I'd be fine with that too. I just, uh, the, the tales for me mean we're proud of a tradition and there's nothing wrong with that. You mentioned Hansel and Gretel and this was something that Ward Stair started was the, uh, the, the, the semi-staged opera as part of the season and you chose to do Hansel and Gretel just before Christmas time, just before the, uh, the Nutcracker, mm -hmm. I, which I love, mm -hmm. I love it mm -hmm. very much. Um, so are you keeping the opera? Oh yeah, certainly. I did that all uh, the time in my tenure in Milwaukee, for example. Every year we had a, an opera because I think if you live in a community that loves music but doesn't have a dedicated opera house like Chicago Lyric or you know men, uh, Metropolitan Opera, so you, you, you get your measure of opera. And I know there are performing groups here that do wonderful staged performances of opera, but you don't get your Turandot, or you don't get your Valkyrie, or you don't get your romantic shining opera like Hensel and Gretel. You don't get often the full orchestra sound that so many great composers excelled in when they write opera. So they have a right to once a year hear a grand beautiful romantic opera, I think. So one of the things we haven't really talked about yet is the pandemic, which is the, the big elephant in the room. Mm. And uh, I'm assuming that you're hoping that we're going to be back at Kodak Hall in September. Yeah, certainly. We, we talked briefly about it when I said I, I want to have this season full of pieces that remind people of what they have missed for the last couple of months. This, this pandemic has had a real, really devastating impact on the arts. And now it's time to build back. And, and, and there have been changes in technology and delivery mm -hmm. of the arts. As we build back, are some of those changes going to stay, do you think? Yeah, we noticed, for example, that our audience really likes our streamed concerts that we do right now in lieu of being able to perform in Kodak Hall. So we keep a little series of those, streamed concerts, because people really enjoyed that. And I think that the um, flexibility that was needed from orchestras around the world 
because of those restraints, you can only play with 20 people or 15 or whatever the, the recent number is, it's different everywhere else. That, that um, restriction has also led people like me to go back to our catalogs and say, what, what is there maybe for 15 or 20 people that we have not done in a while? And we discovered a whole wonderful new uh, group of pieces that we will continue to perform, even though um, we might be able to play with 80 or 90 people now, but we might still every once in a while to do one of these quirky pieces with smaller orchestration because they're wonderful. And we didn't do them in such a long time because we didn't have to, but these last few months we had to. Now I am intrigued by you making your debut as a pops conductor. No, it's not my debut. Here it is my debut. Here in Rochester, but yeah. But I've always loved certain kinds of pop music. I love the American songbook. As somebody asked me earlier what, what music plays in your house, and I said it's certainly not Alpen Symphony or something like that. It's, it's mostly the great recordings that Ella Fitzgerald did of the Cole Porter songbook or the Gershwin songbook or the Rodgers and Hammerstein. I, I just love what, what is known as the great American songbook. And whenever I have an excuse to do that, <laughs> I do it. I did it in Milwaukee. I was very good friends, as you know, with um, our principal pops conductor, Doc Severinsen, and I'm very good friends with Jeff Tysak. So one of the first things we did is we said, you, you come to my series and do a symphonic program of movie music, and I come to your um, series and bring my, my dear friend Anne Hampton Calloway, who does this repertory so well. She's so good. Oh, I love her. And uh, so we're going to do an evening of the American Songbook. That's really nice. I noticed that, yes, that Jeff gets, gets his side in the Philharmonics, too. So that's fair and square. You're going to be following in the, the footsteps of great conductors. And each conductor, music director, has left some kind of a legacy with the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra. So, Andreas, what are you hoping your legacy is going to be? <laughs> um, let me answer the question this way. Um, my legacy in Milwaukee, where I was for 12 years, is that I built an indestructible bond between the community and the orchestra. I think everybody there would tell you, uh, Milwaukee with orchestra, unthinkable. We couldn't imagine that. And, and I'm very proud of that, because as orchestras, uh, music makers, we always have to question our relevance. You know, because there are people who don't go to concert and they say, oh, it's a, elite group sitting in an ivory tower that costs a lot of money. What I've always worked on is to deal with that prejudice and say, no, we are essential. We are part of your community. Um, you cannot imagine a community without this orchestra. And that's what I would love to do here. I, I think to a certain degree it already exists here. This is such an art and music loving town. And I think uh, people are incredibly proud of the Rochester Philharmonic, but I really want everybody in Rochester, even those who never go, to know that a future of Rochester without the Rochester Philharmonic is unthinkable. I want to thank you very much for spending time with me, but before you go, Andreas, we have the speed round. It's five easy questions, so people can get to know you a little better. Are you ready? All right. All right. Dogs or cats? Dog, singular. There's only one, and that's my beloved German Spitz, Casper. Manhattan or Martini? Both, at the same time, together. <laughs> if you could listen to only one piece of music for the rest of your life, what would it be? The Bach Suites for Solo Cello. 
and I'm in good company there. I, I recently had the good fortune to meet Sting, and we talked about exactly that question. And we said at the same time, Bach Suites. He, he doubled up with saying it has to be Yo-Yo Ma's recording. I'm a little bit more flexible in that, but I would say <laughs> Bach. What are you reading, and what's next on your reading list? I got for Christmas David Sedaris' book. It's all his best stories. I forgot the title, but it's all his highlights, the best pieces he ever wrote. And I love it, and I enjoy it very much. And what was the second half? And what's on next on your reading list? The next on my reading list is four volumes of Thomas Mann, which is the last oh. Thomas Mann that I have not read. Uh, it's called Josef und seine Brüder, Josef and his brothers. For, for thousands of pages of biblical narration, and I promised my wife I would do it because it's missing in our list of books that we can discuss with each other. So that's going to be a hard one. Yeah, that's going to be a long <laughs> yes. project. And finally, aisle or window? Window. I like to see landscapes and time and people passing by me. Well, I'm aisle, so apparently mm -hmm. we'll we can, be a perfect We can travel together. <laughs> Good. Thank you again very much. And again, congratulations and welcome to Rochester. Thank Maestro you so much. Andres Delfs. Thank you.